Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming today. I hope you have a Bible uh, ready nearby. And if you wouldn't mind, let's go ahead and turn to, uh, we're going to be in several passages today, but we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 2. As you are turning there, just a week or two ago, uh, Kevin DeYoung put out a new book, uh, which I have here called Men and Women in the Church, A Short Biblical Practical Introduction. And we have a, a few extra copies back here as well if you are interested in this book. Um, I will just tell you that not only is the tone, the tone of the book uh, gracious in its, in its uh, presentation, but it is a very sophisticated uh, book despite its slim size. He, he, I think DeYoung does something that's pretty hard to do, which is he deals with some of the sophisticated counter-arguments to the position we're arguing for as a church here from Scripture, and he gives really concise, helpful uh, responses. And I think, I don't know that you can have a book this brief that covers as much material this well uh, as this book. So we do have some extra copies. If you are interested after Sunday school, you can come up and grab one that we have available. And uh, some of what we're talking about today, I'm borrowing in part from, from some of what DeYoung wrote in his chapter. We are about to pray Again, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you, are, uh, if you are still turning there, let me remind you of where we have been and where we are going before we pray. So we've been discussing gender roles in the home and now more in the church, the local church. One thing at the beginning I just want to make clear is Paul's instructions to households are paralleled. If you, if you, in fact, if you look at 1 Timothy 3 real quick right next to us are paralleled by God's instructions for the local church. The local church is called God's household. And so there are household instructions for families, and there are household instructions for local churches. So 1 Timothy 3, look at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so you will see a lot of household comparisons. Uh, Paul will say things to Timothy like chapter 5, verse 1, family language for the church. 5.1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So you see the family language is prominent in 1 Timothy. The local church is the household of God. And so we would expect since we see God calls men to be humble leaders in their home. We would expect a parallel that God would call men to be humble leaders in the church, and that's what we're going to see in part today. So as we start, we're going to hear some of the parameters. To put it this way, it's like a fence. Uh, you need a fence to know the limits, right? God is giving, you may eat from any, any tree in the garden, but of this one tree you may not eat. God put a fence around one tree using His law. And so he said, you can eat any of these trees, but there's one limitation. This is not for mankind to eat from, not for man to eat from. And so similarly, God is going to take uh, men and women. He's going to say, okay, here are certain things that can be done and cannot be done depending on one's sex or gender. And then he gives lots of freedom for all kinds of ministry that men and women are called to in God's church. So Papa Fred, can you pray for us? And then we will hop in. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Um, you know, I was provoked this morning and uh, preparing um, from Second uh, Timothy 3, and Lord, um, the, your word says all Scripture, uh, including that which we're looking at this morning, is breathed out by God or, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Thank you, Lord, for fences. Uh, and your, your fence here is, is your word. Uh, 
And as we, as we talk about those boundaries or those fences, uh, I pray for your spirit to guide us and lead us as we rightly exposit your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And again, a word of introduction. Uh, I have been teaching high school students for a while now, and I have for quite some time, every, I think every year, gotten questions about passages like the one we are looking at today. So, I, one time I was in class, and I could name the person. I remember this young girl who's now married, uh, and uh, she said to me in class, she, this is like opening moment in class, I'm about to start, and she said, raise your hand, yes, why does the Bible hate women? Based on text like this. And then I was in another Bible study one time, and I had a, an intelligent young Christian woman. Uh, her question was, and it was this exact passage because she read it out loud in, in, in the Bible study, and she said, I know that the Bible is the Word of God, but this sounds demeaning to women. That's, that, that's what she said. Like, how am I to think through this? How, what am I to think about that? So we are going to be looking at a fence that God has put in place. And, you know, the old saying goes, if you're going to take a fence down, you should probably first know why it was put up right? So let's not take down the fences God has put up. Let us, let us know that they are there for a good purpose for the flourishing of both men and women in God's families and in, in families and in God's household, the, the local church. So, Scott, can you read verses 8 through 15 of 1 Timothy 2? Sure. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, as we, as we jump into this, uh, three years ago we talked about some of these same issues in our church and uh, this is not from a member of our church. This is from uh, someone who had visited our church when I had taught personally on this issue, on this passage a few years ago. And I just want to read one paragraph from an email I received uh, soon after my sermon. Uh, here's, here's what this person said. I think that if God created roughly 50% of His human population to be women, He has greatly capped the potential for His glory by forbidding women to teach. These teenage girls, my, uh, he's talking about, she's talking about teenage girls in our church, these teenage girls might just have the calling to be used in amazing ways for God's kingdom, as I had. Teaching from a man or from a woman, could it ever be sinful or against God's design in any way if a soul is one from death to life? And the email was much longer than that, but that, that, is, that is part of the email that I received, and I've heard this kind of thing for, for well over a decade now, maybe 15, 13, 15 years now I've been hearing these kinds of things, and I, I don't want to be derogatory or demeaning in the way I respond to that. I, I think I understand why people say those kinds of things, but the first thing I want to put in place just really clearly to lay out, can God use even the sins of human beings and turn them back for His glory and good? Yes. Can God use tragedies, horrible accidents, and horrible events in, in, in our lives and turn them back for good in our life? 
Joseph sold into slavery was, was an evil act. Did God bring great good out of that and have a great purpose in that? Yes. So we don't want to become Christians who start arguing that the ends justify the means. We don't want to say, okay, something happened, and it was a, it's not what Scripture said we should do, but we did something that was not in accordance with Scripture, but in the end, something good came of it. Therefore, it justifies the, the action. Uh, that's not the way uh, to, to talk. I heard one pastor say, I know a young man who was converted after his mother passed away in a car accident. But he said, that's not something you should be encouraging, right? We're not going to say, let's start the ministry of car accidents in order to bring about people's conversion. No, the Lord can use horrifically tragic moments for good, but, but we need to know what God has commanded us to do and, and to see that as what is good for us. So let's start off verse, uh, verse 8. Would you guys jump in there on the, on the, on the command there for men to pray with uh, holy hands lifted without anger or quarreling? Well, and particularly that day, uh, men were expected to lead, and so he's admonishing the men to lead in the, in the prayer. Now, he also tells women to pray also, mm-hmm. so it's not just men, but to set an example, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, it's just, it's the headship thing in, in the church. And that men are to set an example by leading. Uh, you know, women are notorious for their prayer meetings. I mean, it's a lot easier to get a group of women together to pray, I think, sometimes than a group of guys. But uh, again, here Paul is admonishing Timothy to um, to direct the men to pray, to lift their hands to glorify God. Setting an example, I think, for everyone else in their headship role. Yes, and they are to use their hands not for physical violence, right. not to put down others, but, not, not to fight and quarrel, but to praise the Lord with it and to use the, their, their hands in a way to, to be humble before the Lord in prayer. Yeah, one pastor just said, God is not nearly as interested in the posture of prayer as he is in the purity of prayer. When Paul mentions the outward sign of holy hands, he is talking about the inward reality of a holy life. Bitterness and resentment make for sour Prayers. So even just thinking about different ways the Bible talks about praying on our faces, on our knees, or with like lifting our hands, this should be, it's really more about the posture of the heart. Whatever's going to help me pray with a good posture in my heart, if it is kneeling or whatever. And if we are praying with bitterness and resentment, that's going to make for sour prayers, which reminds me of First Peter 3 that we looked at last time about husbands live with an, in an understanding way, like, or you know, your prayers will be hindered, mm-hmm. and how desperately we need our prayers not to be hindered uh, in, in uh, husband-wife relationships. That's good. And Spurgeon also, uh, one of our favorites, always admonishes going in your prayer closet. You know, don't let the left hand say what the right hand's doing. Go in and, and pray. Yes, yes. So a, a local church should be marked by, of course, women who love prayer, but here he's zeroing in on men not disputing, quarreling, but giving themselves to prayer without uh, any kind of anger. Uh, verses uh, 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Again, this repeats a little bit from 1 Peter 3. It's not saying it is a sin to wear gold. It's not like, I have a gold, you know, if you had a gold wedding ring, is that a sin to wear? If I ever have a, you have a pearl necklace, is that a sin to wear? That's not what, that's not what Paul's getting at. 
It, the the, uh, the so-called New Roman Woman at the time, uh, it became very popular for very wealthy women to adorn themselves in an incredibly showy sort of way, where they would braid their hair elaborately, and in their braiding, you can read up on this in history, they would put pearls, gold, costly attire, and they would really basically take their wealth, and they would put it in their hair, and they would have elaborate hairstyles to flaunt their wealth before others. It wasn't just about looking nice at church, nothing wrong with that. It, this was about flaunting your wealth, even your socioeconomic uh, status in the church. So you can imagine a woman coming into the church service and she walks down and sits down in front of people and just her wealth is just screaming from her hair as she is showing off really what she possesses. And, and Paul says, listen, it's not wrong for, for, for us to be dressed nicely and respectively, uh, respectively, Proverbs 31 woman clothed in scarlet. That's not the problem. The problem is when the focus becomes on flaunting the external beauty and the wealth and the status and making that the be-all end-all. He says, rather... Uh, a, a woman should um, adorn herself with her good works. That should be the number one thing, as we have talked about previously. A few thoughts on that. Yeah, one, one pastor said, a Christian woman, I think he's thinking about it, a single woman. He says, a Christian woman does not go to church to meet men. She goes to meet God. So wow. getting ready for church is primarily a matter of preparing the heart. I thought that was so good. I mean, you, you, we're, we're going to meet God. That's the primary thing we're, we're going for. And another, same pastor, he says, the way to become more attractive is through godliness, not gaudiness. He said, women labor to make themselves beautiful on the inside, not on the outside. And he asked some, some questions that I thought were good. He said, true beauty comes from nurturing the inward woman. Ask questions like these. How much money do I spend on my appearance, on clothes, jewelry, cosmetics, beauty treatments, and the like? How does that compare with my giving to the Lord's work? How much time do I spend in front of the mirror? And how much time do I spend on my knees. I just thought that was so helpful. I mean, really helpful for all of us, but like proportionally on a scale, am I spending far more money, far more time on outward things? Or proportionally, am I spending far more th on inward realities? And it should be, we should be spending more cultivating that inward godliness, inward beauty should be the primary thing. I think also it, it's, is it calling attention to yourself? Um, I, some of you people that are older might remember, but I grew up in the days, I remember in our church, the Easter bonnets. I mean, I, of course, as a kid, I couldn't see around the Easter bonnets, and, and they were really lavish affairs, kind of like the, the automobiles in the 50s with the fins and the feathers and all this kind of stuff. You know, I, it was, to me as a kid, it was kind of humorous, but I couldn't see around those big bonnets, but I guess that was the, a fashionable, but also to some degree, I guess it would be calling attention to your attire, you know, so... Yeah, and we, we, you can broaden the application. Anything that we're doing that's primarily about drawing attention to me, whether male or female, whether for whatever reason, anything I'm doing that the point of my motive, whether it looks like it outwardly or not, is that you see something in me or I see something in you, and we, we kind of, we, we, this kind of, uh, this desire for admiration and applause, that's what we have to be on guard for. The, the, the goal should not be human applause. The goal should be serving others, loving others well. Um, a couple questions from a female author uh, on this passage. I won't read all 10 of these, I'll just read a few, just kind of continue with Scott's train of thought here. Another question you could ask about clothing is, what statement do your clothes make about your heart? Another question, is your shopping for and purchasing of clothes governed by modesty and self-control? In choosing clothes to wear uh, each day, whose attention do you most desire, whose approval do you crave? Next question, do I spend more time each day caring for my personal appearance than I do with Bible study, prayer, or worship? Do I exercise uh, primarily in order to, to maintain a good external figure, or do I exercise in order to strengthen my body for God's service? 
Is there anything about my appearance that I wish I could change, or am I grateful to the way that God has created me? Am I jealous of the appearance of others, or am I truly glad when, uh, when I observe others who, at least to me, seem to be more physically attractive than I am? When I attend an event, do I simply compare myself with others, or do I ask God to show me uh, whom to love and how to do it well? Do I ever dress immodestly with the, intent of, with the intent of drawing attention to myself, or do I always dress in a manner that is pleasing to God? So those are just, I think, healthy questions for everybody to ask themselves in relationship to that topic uh, as we go forward. All right, are we ready to move to uh, 11? Now, these are the infamous verses, verses 11 and 12. The Word of God says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I will tell you, there, you don't have to work to be controversial with the Bible. I think, I think it was John Piper said, if you want to be controversial, just read sentences out of your Bible. That's how you become controversial. Just reading some of these words out loud today, you, you, you wonder if... Uh, yeah, you know, you wonder what people may be thinking or how they might react to something like that. But just real quick, as a reminder, 11 begins with what we talked about a few weeks ago. This is countercultural in the time it was written. Let a woman learn. Just stop right there. That was not the way most Jewish rabbis thought. Most Jewish rabbis at the time did not allow women disciples to follow them, to learn from them, to sit at their feet. Remember Mary and Martha, end of Luke 10? One is burdened by much serving. The other one, I think it's Mary, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And uh, Martha says, why won't you send Mary, my sister, over to help me with all this preparation of food? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Mary has chosen the better portion, and it will not be taken away from her. What was, what was happening was Mary was sitting where oftentimes the men would sit. They're sitting at the feet of the rabbi. They're learning at the feet of Jesus. She is learning with, with a passionate desire to know Christ better. And Martha is busy entertaining the guests. And no doubt those are both valid things. But Martha had become caught up in the anxiety of hospitality. She had become overly wrapped up in, in fear of what people were going to think. And if she did anything wrong, and what if we make fools of ourselves and all that kind of stuff. And what's Mary doing? She's occupied at the feet of Jesus and she is Learning. Let the women learn. This is countercultural. I know that may sound strange, but that is countercultural when Paul wrote this command. So don't just think of the negative aspect to this. Think of the positive. God is commanding women to be diligent studiers of their Bible and to know Jesus greatly, uh, as well, if not better than the men. I mean, go for it in the study of the Bible. There should be no limits on that. That's Papa right. Fred? That, that's also true in the Greek culture as well. Of course, they overlapped there for a period of time, but uh, the Greek culture didn't didn't want a woman educated to learn, to sit at the feet of the teacher. Yeah, I mean, just jumping, jumping off of that, what, what they've already said, here's another, another quote from the same guy I've been quoting, Phil Reichen. He says, it is her responsibility before God to become a student of biblical doctrine. God wants women to be knowledgeable in the scriptures and sound in their, in their theology, to be women of, of the Bible. And I, I thought about uh, Haley Crane. Haley's not here right now, but uh, Shannon Rodriguez mentioned this. They were in a book club together for years, and she, she saw Haley, and she says, here's little Haley. She's small. She's unimposing, but she's got this 
backbone of steel, like theological steel backbone. Like she knows the Bible. She's always quoting scripture is what Shannon was saying. Well, here's Haley is someone who, who spent time getting to know the, the word of God. She knows Bible, knows doctrine. I mean, that's what all women in our church should aspire to be like that. Or I think of Liliana, she'll go for my commentary. She's studying a book of the Bible. And she's like, do you have a commentary on this? And she's got James Boyce. She's got Kent Hughes. She's got R.C. Sproul. She's got, she's got commentaries spread out. And she's loving reading the Bible. And she's got her notepad. She's got the Bible, study Bibles out. Like, that is beautiful. It is so amazing. I love that. Uh, and that's how women should aspire to do that, to be women of the word, studying the word. I remember Erica that one time wrote in the group me. She said, does anybody have any commentaries on Leviticus? I thought, that's awesome. Like, that is amazing. <laughs> and you were like, yeah, come get some from, from me. I was like, who does that? But like, that's so, I mean, she is doing this. She is learning the Bible. She's getting commentaries on Leviticus. How many men are getting commentaries on Leviticus? Erica was getting them. Uh, that, we've got examples in our church of women who do this. Well. Yeah, and I don't, don't let anyone feel guilt over Erica because she, Erica Anstey is unusually gifted with reading in general. So don't, we, I don't want to compare myself to Erica, but Erica, when she was first converted in our church, she was borrowing multiple books from me a week, books I hadn't even finished myself that I owned. And she would bring them back the next Thursday on our books, our Bible study, our discussion group. She said, okay, here's, I read those four. You got any more? And I would hand her four more. And she would read them the next week. And I'm sitting there going, that's not possible. And I gave her Grudem's systematic theology, and that took her, you know, like a month. <laughs> she read through Grudem. I mean, it's a 11, 1,200-page book. And she was just devouring books as a brand-new Christian. And there is nothing better than to see that hunger for the Word, that desire to grow. And we, we have, uh, I don't want to say this the right way, but I mean, I would put the women in our church up against anybody when it comes Amen. to their love for Scripture, their love of the Bible, their, their knowledge of Scripture. I just, they are, it's not a competition, but if it were, I think our women would win. I mean, just, it's just amazing the, the, what the Lord has done in our church with, with the women here who take the Bible seriously, ask hard questions, and want to dig in. So th this, is, this is a freeing thing. I think, I think it's an indication of regeneration, Yes, frankly. I mean, the hunger, the thirst, the appetite for yes. the work. Yeah, I hated reading until my conversion. And oh, yeah. I knew something had happened when I wanted books for Christmas. That was a, something. Instead of movies. <laughs> <laughs> CDs and movies back was what it used to be. Okay, now getting into the, the, the real uh, difficult part, I suppose. Not difficult to understand, but difficult to, to, to fully grasp here. Look at the, uh, back to 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If you'll hold your spot there and look at chapter 5, verse 17 of 1 Timothy, you will notice that the two things God forbids women from doing, He does not permit women to do, are teaching and exercising authority over men in the church. Teaching and authority. Teaching and authority. Now, look at 5.17. This is very clarifying. Let the elders or pastors or overseers, all the same job, let the elders who rule well, that's authority, rule well, authority, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So do you see the two unique aspects of an elder pastor uh, is the ability to teach and the exercising of rule or authority in the church. So, teaching and authority are the particular calling of elder pastors in the church. And Paul says, both formally, a woman therefore is ruled out from being an elder, clearly. And a woman cannot be an elder pastor because what they do is rule and teach. And Paul says, I don't permit women to rule and teach. So, he not only rules out the formal office of elder pastor for women, he also rules out the function of elder for the woman. Do you see what I'm saying there? Because someone could informally rule and teach in some kind of less, less 
official capacity. But Paul says, no, 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 no. So let's get really specific here. I'll state some of the negatives fence parts first, and then we'll get to the more so-called positive. They're all positive because they're for our flourishing, but the so-called restrictive aspects, this is what I would say here. Not only are women not called by God to be pastors, so, you know, in in emails that I might get or conversations I might have, you you might hear people say, you know, what if the Lord has called me to do this? What, What if I feel as a woman called to be a pastor? I remember in the 90s when Al Mohler became a president of Southern Seminary, there were a lot of women there working, and I'm, I have no problem with women going to seminary. Let the women learn. I am all for women in seminary. But a lot of these women who are at Southern Seminary were actually looking to become Southern Baptist pastors, lead pastors, pastors of churches. And Al Mohler had gotten there, and he was my age at the time, which is just crazy. And he's in a Q&A they have still on YouTube where he's answering questions from a very uh, emotionally intense group. I mean, men and women, fiery, just angry at Al Mohler because he believed that these verses are true. And so there was uh, one young woman after another at the microphone, just letting him have it for saying, God has called me to be a pastor. How dare you stand there as a man who clearly does not like me or care about me, not letting us train to be pastors. He said, I'm all for you training about theology, but I don't want you to train for pastoral ministry because of 1 Timothy 2 and other passages like it. And if you watch the Q&A, Moeller is so gracious and so humble and so patient with everyone yelling at him throughout the thing, men and women. And at the end of it, you, you hear his humility. But what do you say? If someone says, I feel called to be a pastor, and I'm a woman, and what, what do I do? First thing is this. The objective teaching of God's Word always takes priority and authority over my subjective impressions about God's leading in my life. Does everybody hear that? that is, so, whatever I feel subjectively like the Lord is calling me to do, the, the Lord is calling me to do blank, and you know biblically it's wrong, but I just feel like the Lord is setting this up perfectly for me. Well, maybe you're David in the cave, and Saul just came in, and this is a test. See, David could have said, the Lord is clearly leading me to kill Saul. He just came into the cave. I happen to be hiding in. What are the chances? The Lord has opened a door for me to kill the king. And clearly, that was not God's will, because God said, touch not the Lord's anointed. So, the Word of God took precedence over subjective impressions in David in that moment. He submitted to God, cut off the corner of the garment, did not kill Saul, let let that stay in God's hands. So, we don't let our subjective impressions… counteract what Scripture clearly says. Now, that being said, we will talk in a moment about many ways women can use their gift of teaching. Many women are gifted to teach, and there are many, 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 like most avenues in the church, where women can teach in different kinds of ways, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I lost my train of thought. I was so into it. <laughs> I was following you. I, I think this is just part of the fences or the boundaries, and I always go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That, that God set up in the order of creation. He mentions it. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Those are some of the boundaries and fences that led him to this uh, assumption there or teaching. And, and so we go back to the, we don't like fences because fences, I remember Chuck Swindoll is one of my favorite. He's got more stories. He was going to the, took his kids, grandkids to the zoo and they were said, this big sign there says, do not make eye contact with the apes. And, and so he's there with all his grandkids, you know. He says, I just wanted to cross my eyes. He says, it's all I could do to. And so when somebody tells us no or we can't do something like don't walk on the grass, we just want to do it. Yep, that is exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, again, uh, another pastor who says, God's word critiques every culture. Often the scripture that most shocks and surprises us or even offends us is the scripture we most need to 
to hear. I thought that was so good. But one, I think the same guy, Phil Riken, told this story of a missionary. Uh, I went to, I think, the Philippines, and uh, conversions happened. And she knew way more about the Bible than they did. But she was saying, you know, they needed to preach. They needed to preach on Sunday, but they didn't want to preach like, because she knows the Bible better. But then they were translating the New Testament. They came to First Timothy 2. They came to this passage. And once they read this passage, the guy was like, okay, we're preaching. Like he immediately submitted to the word, even though she knows more, we're going to preach. And then Phil Reichen just said, God was greatly honored and glorified by their response. Like they just immediately took it and said, even though she knew way more of the Bible, they, they said, we have to submit to the Bible and we're going to, we're going to teach. And just to throw some more controversy out here, just, th- this is not hard to do today. I don't mean to just take pot shots, but a very famous teacher to women, uh, Beth Moore, you know, you don't get bigger in the Southern Baptist world than Beth Moore. I know she just left the SBC, but she has been as big a voice in the SBC for the last 25, 30 years as any voice, uh, male or female, you can think of. And Beth Moore, uh, even in recent years on Mother's Day, will go preach at a Southern Baptist megachurch. She will preach multiple times on a Sunday to men and women in the congregation, and she is actually promoting this. I've seen her on Twitter telling a young woman who said she feels called to the pastorate, she says, God bless you in that. I mean, so just very, now she claims to be a complementarian, which shows you how the word complementarian means almost nothing today. That's why we were talking about broad complementarian. She call, she's as narrow as you can get, just barely complimentary. And so she will not only preach on some Sunday, she encourages other women to do so. And I, I would just say, as clearly as I know how, this is not out of hatred of her, but I'm just saying, she's so influential, I feel like I have to say something about her voice today. She would say, women can preach sometimes on Sundays with the approval of the male elder board. So she would say, women cannot be elders or pastors, but they can, under the authority of elders, preach. And I would say, elders cannot give you permission to violate the Bible. They can't. Right. I don't care what the elder is saying. They, they're, they're wrong in that moment. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. How is she not teaching men when she's preaching to men? And some people have tried to define the word teaching so small in such a narrow way that it doesn't incorporate preaching. And I'm going, then what kind of teaching are you talking about? What is, it, what is your teaching if it doesn't incorporate what happens when you preach? So just, just as clear as we can possibly be on that, I think that is crystal clear uh, and real quick, a, a counter-argument I got even in Bible college, because most people in my class in college disagreed with me on this very topic. I can still remember this sweet Christian girl next to me who just thought my position was not nice. And, and uh, <laughs> she, 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 she's married, and I haven't seen her in a long time, but I can, I can still remember some of the things she said. And with this passage, the argument was this. This was written to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus. In Ephesus at the time, women were not as educated as men, which is generally true. And so the argument is, Paul is not giving you a universal command. He is giving a temporary prohibition based on the, un- the ignorance of the women at the time. And is, the point is, well, let the, let the women learn. Once they've learned, then the restriction would be taken away, and women could teach and have exercise authority over a man. Now, that's a very prominent argument amongst the ev- evangelical feminist group. And I will just tell you, if that's what Paul meant... He would have told us that. Absolutely. Instead, Paul gives us the reason, and the reason has nothing to do with Ephesian culture. Look at verse 13. For, here's his reason, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Does Paul root his argument in first century Ephesian culture? No. He roots it in the most transcultural moment in history before the fall. And he says, God made Adam first, and then Eve as a helper for him, which tells you something fundamental about the relationship between husbands and wives in the home and men and women in the local church. And he says, Adam's being formed first is proof positive that women should not be pastors or be teaching men in the church. That's now, 
whatever someone may think, that's Paul's argument. He does not base it in the cultural argument, which is how most people try to respond to these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, Tom Schreiner said the proscription on women teaching men then does not stem from the fall and cannot be ascribed to the curse. Paul appeals to the created order, the good and perfect world God has made, to justify the ban on women teaching men. The effect of this appeal is to look beyond culture to creation. Just, just exactly what, what you're saying. As far as the Adam was deceived, uh, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor, just notice in verse 13, who formed Adam first? Who formed Adam first? God. God, right? God formed Adam first. So God put the male leadership there. Now, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Who did the deceiving of the woman? The serpent. Now, do you see? When it's God's design, he puts the male priority of leadership and responsibility. When Satan slithers into the garden, what does he do? He flips the order upside down and puts Eve in the position of leader in that moment. And so, Paul could not be more non-cultural than this argument. The way creation happened had male headship in its creation. The way the fall happened was the inverting of the order of male and female. This could not be more transcultural an argument than he makes. And just for the sake of brevity, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So women have to have children to be in heaven one day. Okay, no, that's not what this verse means, okay? No, not at all. I do, I do disagree here with the NSB on this. They, they translate it preserved, which I don't think is the meaning of saved. Paul always means salvation when he uses the word sozo in Greek in his letters, and I think he means it here. Here's all I think he means, and we could go into a much longer point here, but I just boil it down. I think the most likely interpretation is this. The normal calling for women in a way that distinguishes them most from men is in their ability to have children. That's, that, that's the most obvious way in which women are different from men in their roles is they can bear children, and men cannot, no matter how much they try. Not possible, okay? I know today people are probably trying to make that happen, but it's not going to happen. And so the most obvious difference between men and women is women can bear children, men cannot. And so Paul says he highlights a part for the whole, a part that represents the whole. Women should not ignore their calling in this world. Most women, not all, most women are called to marriage and one day to childbearing. And so Paul says women will be saved as they live out their salvation in the context God has made them for. Usually that involves childbearing, childrearing, and their character should be marked by faith, love, holiness, self-control to the end of their life. So I, I think Paul means nothing more than that, that, that women will normally live out their salvation in the context of bearing and raising children, which is echoed later in chapter 5 when he says, a woman who's godly has brought up children and shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints and adorned herself with good works. It's, it's just, it, it's a form of redemption in a way. There's, there's nothing more mothering than a mother. Now, I'm not saying 100% of mothers, in case you have one of those, but <laughs> who do you go to when you you know, scrape your knee. You go to your mom. You My know, kids your run dad. past me to Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And, and, and that's, that's universally true. That's why we so honor mothers. And I think that's the point Paul's trying to make here. Mothers are shepherding, loving, nurturing, caring, much more so than, and I'm just saying universally, than mm -hmm. dads are. And so I think that's his point. All right, quickly turn to the right two books to Titus 2. Paul clearly does not say women cannot teach ever, that women don't have the gift of teaching. Women do have the gift of teaching, just like men, but the way they exercise that looks a little bit different depending on the context. Well, 
not just on the context, depending on God's Word and His, his uh, law. So look, look at Titus 2. We'll, we'll walk through this relatively quickly. Verse 1 of Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's that family motif again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So women are teaching. They are to teach what is good, older women, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. That is an astonishing statement. So, older women absolutely are not just allowed, but commanded to teach younger women. So, older women finding avenues where they can teach and train younger women to do what is good. Thoughts on Titus 2? Yeah, Elizabeth Elliot says, she talks about her mom and how much she poured into her, but then she, she says this, she says, I have also been greatly blessed by spiritual mothers, older women who happened to be there geographically when my mother was not, women who had time for me. They would not have thought of themselves as spiritual mothers. They were simply being kind to a young woman who needed their example, their steadfastness, their godly counsel, their prayers. And I just thought, again, our church has, has done this so well. Like Victoria Williams mentioned uh, recently how she was so thankful for Elizabeth Prada. Miss Elizabeth, she said, who Elizabeth has poured into so many women who are younger. I thought about Haley Chronic mentioned this recently about Michelle Hakama. She, she reaches out to Michelle. She texts Michelle like for help. Like, I need help raising boys. Like, and what you have with someone who's done this, uh, raised boys. And so I, I just think our church has done this so well. I thought Abby mentioned Jane Linder the other day, how she calls Jane, she reaches out to Jane, even Holly Elrod mentioned uh, Haley Crane. Like, our church is, is flourishing in this, but it's sort of like the Paul Timothy thing I was thinking about. Like, you, you've said this, where we should all have a Paul and all, also have a Timothy, where, where you could have women in our church, you have someone older and someone younger where you're, you're being poured into, but you're also pouring into people. And I was just thinking, if you know you're going to get together with someone else, have coffee or, or go to a Christian gathering, you should be thinking, how can I redeem this time? Like, how can I ask questions and learn from someone older? How can I maybe encourage somebody mm-hmm. younger? Just thinking ahead, this, is, this time's going to be a gift. How can I maybe even turn this spiritually? I think of Matthew Henry. I think it was Matthew Henry in his biography where he was talking with his doctor, and they were just talking about other things, and it came to the end of the conversation, and Matthew Henry just said, Let's talk one word of Jesus, one word of Christ before we part ways. Like just mm. always trying to bring it back to some spiritual thing to try to just redeem that time with, with sisters and sisters or even brothers gathering together just to something to think about uh, when you're gathering. One of the things uh, I like in, in verse 1, it says, uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I mean, you know, I, that's one thing I, I love about North Avenue. The, you mentioned Erica and systematic theology. <laughs> I mean, all of our discussion groups, all of our uh, you know, small groups, it's the Bible and, and, and systematic theology. In fact, we're using Grudem here as a foundation for this uh, study right now. So Yes. No, that's good. And any other comments on Titus 2? I know we're just running low on time. Anything else? Just if you wouldn't mind turning to the left to 2 Timothy 3. And Paul, again, probably in his 60s, talking to Timothy around the age of 30 as a younger pastor figure. And uh, Paul says this, 2 Timothy 3, and I love this passage. Look at verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14. And, and just before I read this, remember, Timothy did not have a believing father. His father was not a believer. 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. The whom is plural, it says. 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Referring to the Old Testament. We'll flip back to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Who taught Timothy his Old Testament when he was growing up since his dad was a pagan Gentile? His dad was not a believer. 2 Timothy 1, this is just so encouraging. 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your, Timothy, your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. How did Timothy become a believer? Who taught him the Bible? The women in his life. It wasn't his father. Acts tells us, Acts 16, he had no believing father. His mother and his grandmother poured the Old Testament on Timothy as a young child. And Paul says, he just picks up where Lois and Eunice left off, Paul does, and says, continue in what you have learned and from whom you've learned it. Remember their life and, and imitate their faith. He's, he's giving the highest praise imaginable to the mother and grandmother. So how important is it that women teach children the Scriptures? I mean, even in the nursery here, we'll have in different ways women who are able to do, and we're going to be doing more of this, teaching uh, verses or catechisms or things to three-year-olds, four-year-olds in our nursery during the service. This is women teaching children that is honorable to God, that is wonderful. I cannot think of a more important job than teaching our, our children because I think it was John MacArthur who said, if there is one uh, population that needs to be reached with the gospel, it's the nursery. We, we tend to think of missions like lost people out there, which is true, but there's also lost people every time a baby is born. It's an unbelieving child so far. And so, letting them be taught Scripture and brought up in the faith, Lois and Eunice are to be praised for the way that they taught children. So, women should teach children the, uh, the Bible. They should teach other women the Bible. Uh, and my understanding is as men get older, that should be like a grading scale. Over time, the more a man becomes a man rather than a boy, the less women should be the primary Bible teachers in his life, and the more men should be taking that job up and, and leading them forward as they get older. I don't, I don't have an age on that. When you turn 13, 18, 21, I don't know. But just as you get older, I mean, I would not want a college ministry or beyond primarily led by women uh, if that was avoidable, just because they're becoming men, and so it seems like men should be teaching the men, but certainly children should be invested in by women. You know, I, statistically, I just heard a, uh, uh, I think it was through Moeller, that church attendance for the first time had fallen below 50%. I think it's like 47% now, and I did some st uh, look, looking at statistics this morning, uh, it, it, the, the church attendance has broken out. 61% are female now and 39% male. So I, my question is, where are the men? Mm -hmm. Because the population is not that much different. You've got 52.52 female versus 49.48 male. So essentially the same. But women are going to church and not, not men. So where are the men? What, what would you say to the men who are being more passive in their spiritual walk? Who are they? Men who are being more passive in their spiritual walk. What would you say to them? Uh, stand up. Lead. Reject passivity. Accept responsibility. Lead graciously. Invest eternally. <laughs> Absolutely. Because that's what God calls us to do. I mean, there's an order, these fences you're talking about. Uh, stand up. It's good. 
and the church as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we're almost out of time, but just real quick, I would just say, like, what a high calling it is to be a mom and, like, to invest in kids. Uh, there are examples in church history of this. I thought about John Newton with his mom, Elizabeth Newton, who died at 27. She died before John Newton turned seven. He was six when she died, almost seven, and she just, she had tuberculosis. She was not well. She was gravely ill the entire time. Her husband was gone out to sea all the time, so she had primary responsibility, but she wasn't lazy. She wasn't like, I'm not going to be able to care for him. No, she poured into John Newton. I mean, it's just a powerful story, but the, the biographer says, the spiritual lessons the boy had learned at his mother's knee were never forgotten. They became the foundation for Newton's eventual conversion and Christian commitment. We cannot understand this great man apart from his godly mother. And then this is a powerful quote from a guy named Ed, Edward Donnelly. He says this, talking about heaven. He says, what will it mean to Christian mothers who gave their lives to nurture their children for the Lord? They were underappreciated in this world, pitied by society as unproductive drudges, but imagine their joy when their children gather around them in heaven, and they can say, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So what a, what a calling, what a high calling, and just, I mean, how we should revere the, these, godly, these godly moms, and I mean, just what a responsibility, what a privilege you have to, to pour into your kids. This would be a perfect moment to close, but I still have something more to add. That was tremendous, Scott. Um, real quick, just one more thing. Uh, we'll look, we don't turn there now. We'll get to it in Acts 18. Aquila and Priscilla, that's the husband and wife. Uh, they, I think I got that backwards, the wife and the husband. No, wait, which is which? Priscilla's the, the wife. The wife. Thank you. <laughs> so Priscilla and Aquila, they take Apollos aside, who was a man who was preaching, and he was uh, a very, he was famous for preaching the gospel. He's a great speaker, but he did not fully understand all the gospel yet. He didn't know the full gospel. And so they took him aside as a couple, and I think they had him to their house, and they rebuked and encouraged him in a private, appropriate setting, and the, the wife was involved in that correction ceremony with Apollos, and he left humbled and repented, and he corrected his teaching, and he, he had better teaching afterwards. So a woman can, in an appropriate context, in a private context, bring correction to, uh, in this case, as someone who's preaching or teaching as a man, and, and give correction, and he should be humble to listen and to make correction based on what was said. And I'll close with a quote from Kevin Young's new book. Listen to this. Women can minister. Here are all the ways women can minister. Women can minister to the sick, the dying, the mentally impaired, and the physically handicapped. They can share their faith, share their resources, and open their home to strangers. They can write, counsel, mentor, organize, administrate, design, plan, and come alongside others. They can pray. They can minister to single moms, new moms, breast cancer survivors, and abuse victims. They can bring meals, sew curtains and care packages, and throw baby showers. They can do sports ministries, lead women's Bible studies, teach systematic theology to other women, and plan mission trips. They can teach children. They can raise their children to the glory of God, and they can embrace singleness as a gift from God. I pray for women who love to cook and to work in the nursery. I pray for women, not the male, not the male uh, elders, but women, to counsel almost divorced wives and mentor young ladies and teach the Bible and good doctrine to other women. Oh, how we need women to, who love the Bible and good doctrine. Women can help widows. They can care for those struggling with, the re- with remorse over abortion. They can show the glory of the gospel in ethnic reconciliation. And they can do all of the above cross-culturally in unreached places and with the unwanted peoples of the world. In other words, there are 10,000 things women can be doing in ministry. Pastors especially need to make this point abundantly and repetitively clear. In both of the congregations Kevin DeYoung has had the privilege of serving as senior pastor, he says, I've ministered alongside godly, capable, strong, humble, smart, kind, gifted, complementarian women. And may God give our church more and more of them. 
Can you close us in prayer, Scott? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, just thinking about these passages, but thinking really about the, the women in our church, I am just filled with, with great thankfulness and gratitude to you for all these godly women at our church. Uh, just such an encouragement. What a joy it is to, to shepherd them. Uh, just so thankful for, for all these women who love your word, who love doctrine, who love theology, who love to talk about your word, and uh, thankful for, for someone like Eric who's getting commentaries on Leviticus. I mean, just what an encouragement. Uh, I just would pray that our women would do so more and more, that they would continue to love doctrine and love the Bible and to love to disciple others and, and to love to do the Titus 2, to, to pour into others and to be poured into by others. So just filled with, with thanksgiving for the women in our church. I just pray that they will continue to use their gifts mightily in our church. And uh, yes, the, the Word of God can be sharp and can confront us. And I pray that when that happens, that we would humbly submit to your, to your Word. Uh, again, we are thankful for this time, and we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And quickly, for the next few weeks, if you want to know where we are going, next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, uh, we will be covering uh, singleness, so it'll be called Don't Waste Your Singleness. The next week after that, we'll be talking about dating and engagement. The next week after that, we plan to talk about uh, marriage, not so much from a gender role perspective, but more from like almost a pre-marriage counseling perspective. And then the week after that, we may talk about parenting a little bit as well. So those are the weeks coming up, and we hope you can come back for those as well. Thank you, guys.